Today's episode is sponsored by Wells Fargo Advisors Financial Network Finet, member SIPC. Finet is focused on helping independent advisors support their clients and reach their goals with unique, ever-evolving solutions and resources from one of the nation's largest financial institutions. Learn how you can get more with Finet at wfa.com slash independent. That's wfa.com slash independent. Welcome to the Wellstack Podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Rossick, the Director of Wellstack Content and Solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Chaikin, founder and CEO of Chaikin Analytics. And today's topic, well, when you get to speak to a Wall Street legend whose career has spanned 50 years, you know we have to cover the market outlook. Mark, I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, Shannon, it's good to be with you. And before we dive into our first segment, I want to start with your background because it, because it is just incredibly fascinating. And I just want to know what makes Mark, well, Mark, and how did you end up launching Chicken Analytics? Well, we have to go all the way back into the 1960s when I got very intrigued with Wall Street and uh, entered into a, a training program at a, at a big um, research firm called Shearson Hamill at their main office at 14 Wall Street. And I got registered as a stockbroker. Of course, now every, they're called investment advisors, but we were stockbrokers back then. On October 7th of 1966, it was the day a bear market ended. Think about that. And so for the first two and a half years of my career, every day felt like an uptick. There were some pullbacks along the way, but until 1969, the firm's research was really good. I got to know the analysts. And it was pretty easy to build a book and uh, make money for clients. So uh, that's the beginning. But of course, in 1969, the first bear market that I had actually lived through as a stockbroker reared its ugly head. And I think that story will imbue what happened in the next two years will sort of uh, infuse the rest of our narrative. But fast forward to 2008, and I was happily retired living in Connecticut. And something awful happened to my wife. Her 401k plan dropped by 50%. No surprise, she, she had an account that was managed by an advisor. Uh, but uh, the, all the hard work that she had put in over a 20-year period building her own business just sort of went up in smoke. And at some point, she said, this really isn't working. I can't get him on the phone. Or when I do, he's busy with other bigger clients. There's got to be a better way. And I said, there is. You're going to, um, and I hope this isn't anathema to your advisor clients. I said, but to make you sleep better, you're going to shut down that account, open an account at Vanguard, buy an S&P index fund so that you're in the market when it bottoms out. Because perhaps the worst thing you can do as an investor is to sell out at the bottom of the market and then not get back in. And I'm going to fulfill my life's work and build a suite of tools that can enable not just individual investors like yourself, but advisors to get a quick, confident read on stocks and ETFs and have a better balanced approach to managing client funds. So that's the the long and the short of it. Well, that's an incredibly personal anecdote behind it all to have your wife ultimately drive uh, the evolution and inception of Chaken Analytics. It's an unfortunate experience to go through, but pretty incredible what came out of it. 
Indeed, uh, as she, we now live in Roxbury, Connecticut, and one of the marketing lines uh, when we launched our first newsletter was based around Sandy's experience, and they called her the woman from Roxbury. And she was in a local diner, probably one of the best diners in Connecticut, in a town called Southbury, and the, the big burly short order cook came up to her and he said, pardon me for interrupting, but are you the woman from Roxbury? Oh my goodness. And she said, I guess I am. And then he called over his father-in-law who owns the place. See, I told you that was the woman from Roxbury. So it, it's really personal and it's worked out very well for Sandy and it's worked out well for our clients. Celebrities in your own right. I appreciate the background, Mark. But let's dive into our first segment, which I call Stats All Folks. And Mark, I have to ask you about the number 10. You've been through 10 bear markets, correct? That's right. So what are your biggest takeaways or findings over the years when it comes to navigating a bear market? Well, first of all, you need something more than fundamentals. My my view has always been that fundamentals drive the markets, but that technicals drive the markets to extremes because they monitor human emotions in the market, the swings of optimism and pessimism. So in a bull market, fundamental analysis works really well, combined with a little bit of relative price performance to make sure you're in the leading names. But in a bear market, what I found at Shearson Hamill was the analysts put their feet in cement. They get stubborn about the stocks they've recommended. Obviously, they like the fundamentals in the beginning, and they're very slow to change their opinion. Sometimes they'll double down and say a stock is a better buy at 60 than it was at 100. And finally, at some point, they throw in the towel. So pretty early on, I learned that to preserve client assets and to sleep well at night, you needed something more than fundamentals. And for me, that's always been technical analysis. So in 1969, when the first bear market I ever experienced reared its ugly head, I turned to technicals as a way to protect client capital and also to sleep well, because uh, knowing that I was on top of what the market was saying, as opposed to what the analysts were saying, was a really big plus. So what's your current market outlook then? I'd imagine you have some insight that would surprise people, but I think more importantly, does anything surprise you anymore considering what you've seen over the years? Well, actually, that's a very uh, relevant question right now. I turned bearish on the market in January of 2022 uh, when I realized that the Fed tightening would... Uh, cut off growth at some point and inflation was likely to be a problem. Although I'm not an economist, it was clear uh, that this is going to happen. And I stayed bearish until January 17th. And the reason I stayed bearish is the Fed had continued to raise rates and the technicals were just not good enough in terms of stocks making new 52-week highs and 52-week lows, advancing and declining stocks on the New York Stock Exchange every day. And then something dramatic happened. A signal triggered called a breakaway momentum signal. It triggered on January 13th. Now, this was developed uh, back in the 70s by a, a very experienced technician named Walter Diemer, who was the head technician at the Putnam Funds, and then uh, went off on his own with an institutional technical service. And so on... January 13th, a signal triggered that it only happened 18 previous times going back to 1952. Wow. 
And it's based on the number of issues making uh, advancing and declining on the New York Stock Exchange over a 10-day period. And it's also very similar to the work of Marty Zweig, which some of our listeners may know a little more intimately, and, and actually one of his signals triggered just last week. So based on that very powerful signal, which basically tells you that the bear market is over. And so in this case, it was telling us that the October low was the low, and that even though I had been looking for a lower low based on an earnings recession and weakening fundamentals, that was likely not in the cards. And I think I'm still in that view, uh, in the minority view here, because anybody who's fundamentally driven, people like Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley and uh, Mohammed El Arian on TV, even Jamie Dimon, who has a pretty dour view of the economy uh, ahead of, of JP Morgan's earnings, are waiting for the other shoe to drop. And my technical indicators and the follow-up, other things kicked in after January 13th that convinced me that this was real. And so we have a bullish outlook uh, that's very consistent with what the market typically does in a pre-election year. So 2023 is a pre-presidential election year. Historically, that's been the strongest year for stocks in the four-year election cycle. And I think what's playing out now is the market climbing a wall of skepticism. And clearly, the economy is heading into recession, but it's a very interesting sort of bifurcated, if you will, barbell approach. Unemployment numbers are off the charts good, and manufacturing and service sector numbers are universally poor right now. So some people are saying, well, how can we reconcile that? And my answer is don't try and reconcile it. Let the market tell you what it's going to be doing. And that fits very well with Marty Zweig. So going back to January, I was following Marty's mantra, and he was a really good friend of mine at the beach. And he said, watch the Fed and listen to the market. So up until mid-January, those two were in sync on the downside. But starting on January 17th, the market has been telling me a very different story, and I'm bullish, not on everything, but on strong sectors and industry groups in our power gauge model that I know we're going to talk about. And what sectors in particular are you looking at that you're bullish on? Right now, it's technology front and center. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that um, the semiconductors have just been on fuego uh, since the October bottom in uh, the S&P 500. But now other stocks, not in the mega cap realm, but hardware manufacturers like Dell and Hewlett Packard, um, software stocks like Adobe across the board are participating. And you know you can debate valuations versus inflation rates versus interest rates, but the bottom line is that's where the money's going right now. So that, that would be front and center for me. Uh, secondarily would be consumer discretionary stocks. But as you know, consumer discretionary is a very, very big basket. It's not a homogeneous basket. So you've got automobiles in there, got home builders, you've got retail. It's it's really a mixed bag. And so I like to drill down to the industry groups within consumer discretionary. And in this case, I've mentioned two that are really strong. Home builders are just knocking it off the charts and the companies that supply home builders and other construction projects. 
And I don't see that changing, even as the headlines for housing starts were deteriorating for eight months in a row. This group has been breaking out to new highs. And then some specialty retailer stocks look interesting to me. So I think if you dive down into consumer discretionary, the sector, which would be XL, uh, Y in the uh, select spider sector ETFs, uh, you get a, a much more granular picture of where the opportunities, the best opportunities lie. And going back to the technology piece, I, I came across this great article where you were quoted uh, and talking about the advent of the iPhone and how smartphones have really just completely transformed the Wall Street ecosystem. And while it can be certainly dangerous to constantly have that much information available to us at all times, we're now in this wave of AI and, and looking and trying to understand how that's ultimately going to impact wealth management. Any insights or predictions here? Because you you clearly had the wherewithal to harness the power of the iPhone. What about AI? <laughs> Well, this is interesting, and I think I have some hands-on firsthand experience that goes back into the late 80s. My Both my sons went to Brown University, and uh, one of them studied neuroscience, and part of that was neural networks, which are um, one of the branches of AI that Wall Street has been trying to harness for, uh, I'd say, um, almost 40 years. And so I spent a good three to four years in the late 80s and early 90s trying to build models, mostly technical, but also quantitative more recently, incorporating large data sets. And uh, I got pretty much nowhere with it. That does now it could mean that I'm just not as good a researcher as some of the people who now claim to be making strides. But I know alternative data has become a big buzzword. Oh, yes. And, you know, there are helicopters and planes flying over um, mall parking lots to see what the traffic looks like and people analyzing, you know, retail transactions based on location to try and pinpoint which counties in the country are doing well. I, I'm at, at heart, even though I'm known for technical analysis, I'm a fundamentalist. And so my hat's off to anybody who can use alternative data to find winning stocks, except in the very short term. Now, in terms of this new, what is this called now? Chat, Chat GPT. <laughs> Chat GPT. That's not really artificial intelligence. That is a way to generate text mm -hmm. in, in a quote unquote intelligent way. And by the way, that's been around for a long, long time. There's a company out of North, Northwestern that has been helping, uh, I think it's UBS, produce automated cover letters that take into account the data that's in their portfolio, the performance data, the history, and so forth in an intelligent way. And I think that's been around for over 10 or 12 years. So a lot of this is now harnessing the power of, of bigger computers, more chips, networks, and so forth. But I, I don't think there's anything new under the sun I'm a little nervous about this um, auto-generated text capability because it has the capability of looking very real, but coming to some very wrong conclusions. And that that's a little frightening. I think we're going to have to get some regulation. And I somehow doubt the SEC is going to allow companies to fall back on that instead of crafting individual communications to their clients. 
I would have to agree there, considering most of these AI applications have already needed some type of lobotomy because they've gone <laughs> off the rails already. <laughs> so I'm I'm also very curious to see what happens here. But I do want to pivot a little bit and talk specifically about Chaikin Analytics. And from what I understand, the Chaikin Power Gauge Rating is really... I guess the central nervous system of Chaikin Analytics, and it's just an incredibly accurate indicator of where stocks are headed over the next three to six months or so. And it's, you know, when overlaid over those three um, NASDAQ Chaikin indexes you created, each index exceeded its benchmark by over 45% in the first year. Were you anticipating that kind of success and how has it all performed since? Well, the, that's one use case for the Chaikin power gauge. And we were very pleased when that performance, those performance metrics came out so well. In the spirit of full disclosure, they, they did really well until 2018. And what happened in 2018 is that all quant-based investment approaches took it on the chin when the big mega cap stocks in the S&P created outsized gains. So no matter who you were talking about from the, the best performing hedge funds to the people who were running quant uh, funds out on the West Coast, everybody suffered a drawdown. The good news is in the last three years, we've come roaring back in terms of those indices and significantly outperforming the benchmarks by 30 to 40% over a three-year period. So what what's good about the power gauge is it doesn't work all the time, but it works over time. And it's a discipline. And uh, discipline really matters. But if you want to hear the genesis of it, because I think it'll help people understand why it works. In the 80s, I went to work for Drexel Burnham, which was um, at the time a pretty robust brokerage firm, mostly in the junk bond area. It had been around a long time, but they had one of the only two quantitative databases on Wall Street. It was a guy named George Douglas, He's on the West Coast running quant money today, and he did the original research in earnings surprise and earnings estimate revision. And George gave me as a retail broker access to the database. Fast forward two years, I left Drexel to form my own institutional brokerage firm with a partner, Bob Brogan in Boston, and we launched a technical analysis workstation. And then we're fortunate enough to sell that to Instanet, the electronic trading arm of Reuters, uh, three years later. And there I had a six-person quantitative research department. And we had a variety of clients from, let's say, the most conservative dividend, low PE-oriented investors in the Mid-Atlantic region to the aggressive growth uh, managers in Boston to hedge funds in New York to pension funds. So when I started out, and, and I had to learn what they were all doing in order to sell them our technical analysis terminal. It was very hands-on, one-on-one kind of client interaction. And so I got to look under the kimono, if you will, to see what people like George Soros and Michael Cohen and the great money managers of Fidelity, like Peter Lynch and his successor, were doing, what, what factors they looked at. And that really helped me when I started this uh, two-year research project in 2009 to build the Chaikin Power Gauge Rating. I drew on everything I had learned from these very successful institutional investors who, who all had different styles and different time horizons. 
And I was able to pull that together in a fundamental model, 20 factors grouped into four components, earnings, financials, technicals, that's only 15% of the model, and our secret sauce, expert opinions, which you rarely see in quant models. And the bottom line is what I call a, an eclectic model. It finds a lot of different ways to like stocks and industry groups and ETFs. And it, it sort of reflects the fact that Wall Street is a melting pot of different styles and time horizons, as opposed to, say, uh, a Warren Buffett, who in theory is a value investor, although occasionally he fuzzies the line. But, you know, the prototype for us was a, a, a guy who invested in our company who had been a client named Tony Hitchler, who sadly has passed on recently. But Tony had a company called Brandywine Capital, and his whole investment philosophy was low PE. He did the original research in low PE, and then he sold that money management business to Leg Mason Asset Management. So we've been able to incorporate the factors that a Tony Hitchell would look at to the factors that a, um, you know, a George Soros or uh, one of the Tiger Cubs would look at. And so it's an eclectic model. It's worked since 2011 when we first launched it. And it's really helped people get through bear markets, if not unscathed, certainly better off than they would have been. Well, that's incredible. And you read my mind because my next question was was actually going to be around how you determined the methodology behind the 20-factor model and what ultimately drives that stock rating and, and what makes it unique. But I, I do want to ask, and just for maybe folks who aren't as familiar with this area, you've been talking a lot about fundamentals and technicals. What do you mean by that? That's really interesting because my wife asked me the same question <laughs> two days ago. She was giving a friend of ours up here in Connecticut a a coaching session on our terminal. And uh, part of her workbook said we combine fundamentals and technicals. And she asked the exact same question. That's unbelievable, Shannon. <laughs> fundamentals are what the business is all about. It's the sales, earnings, uh, and also, but also the balance sheets, so the financials. So if you combine uh, earnings and financials, that pretty much sums up fundamentals. Technical is the price action of the stock, price and volume. And something that's really critical that I um, I really started using early on, it's the original research I did, and it's called relative price performance. How is the stock doing relative to the market? You know, money managers, advisors, everybody's compensated in one way or another based on a benchmark. And whether they exceed that benchmark or underperform it. In some cases, it's a monetary reward. In other cases, you lose your job if you consistently underperform the benchmark. So professional money managers are very dialed in to relative price performance because any stock that's underperforming the S&P, if that's your benchmark, if it's in your portfolio, is going to drag down your performance and ultimately your compensation. So relative strength is a technical factor, but it's really critical and fundamental to how advisors look at the world. And when I say advisors, I mean active managers. Obviously, if you're a passive manager buying ETFs, uh, you know, allocating assets across uh, different asset classes, that's not quite as relevant. Although I would argue that if you're allocating to an equity uh, ETF and you have the choice between small, mid, and large value and growth, some of those are outperforming at any given point in time and may continue to and some are going to underperform. So even if you're a passive allocator, I think it's appropriate to 
use some sort of relative strength overlay before you finalize a client's portfolio. Well, thank you for that for that context. It's much appreciated. Um, and I do have to ask, no one anticipated that we would go through a global pandemic. And when you have something like a predictive, you know, stock analysis and picker, how does the power gauge factor in events such as a pandemic or maybe any other major events that could really impact the markets? It it factors it in because three of the 20 factors that we incorporate into the power gauge have to do with what analysts are doing and saying. So, uh, and also how companies report relative to analyst expectations. So those are three of the 20 factors. And that's the stuff I learned from George Douglas at Drexel back in the mid eighties. So uh, let's assume that analysts see a problem down the road and hopefully they're smarter than you and me in terms of analyzing companies and macro factors. Uh, they'll start lowering their earnings estimates or they'll get cautious and move a stock from buy to neutral. And they'll also look at how companies are reporting relative to expectations. So to a large extent, we're dependent, well, not dependent, we key off what the analysts are actually doing. And two of those factors I just mentioned are in the expert component of our model. And uh, so if analysts perceive that inflation is going to go up, they'll factor that into their estimates for chemical companies, for manufacturing companies that are maybe uh, impacted by higher oil prices or higher prices for oil derivatives. And so, and, and those, our ratings are updated every night. Some models are updated once a month. And so they're very sensitive to changes in our analyst opinions, estimates, and earnings surprise, which is relevant here in earnings season. But we also look at what insiders are doing and what the short sellers are doing. And that's those are two very informed groups, especially the short sellers. You don't survive on Wall Street as a short seller unless you're right a lot of the time. And insiders, particularly in small cap stocks, are easily the best informed. And they usually have a bigger stake in the company. So one interesting pattern that has always resonated with advisors who allocate to small caps is if you're a CEO or a president of a small cap company, it's usually closely held and you have a pretty decent position. If you take out your checkbook and buy that stock, you're making a big statement about what you think the prospects for your company are over the next 12 to 18 months. And another issue, interesting point here is that insiders can't trade their own stock. Not if, not if they want to stay out of jail. <laughs> and so they're making a longer term bet when they buy shares. And you've got insiders buying in some uh, key industries right now, like retail. So it's clearly a melting pot and it's really done a great job, not just through the pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic and then uh, heading into 2022 when when the power gauge was had already been giving off warning signals as of February of 2021 on the whole tech sector and the Kathy Woods stock. So a lot of advance warning about where the problems would surface. And no how, pun in, no pun intended. <laughs> that's good to say. <laughs> so specifically, how can advisors and investors 
use Chaken Analytics. You know, I think about this new area in wealth management around advice engagement specifically that advisors are starting to focus on and utilize technology to really customize and personalize experiences with their clients to deliver timely advice when clients want it and need it, meet them where they are. I would imagine that this is in a similar vein. It is. And uh, I'll start off with, with the more um, common use of Chaken, which is a top-down approach, looking at our power gauge ratings for sectors and industry groups, which combine fundamentals and, and technicals. And by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but in 2019, we won the wealthmanagement.com award for best research project, beating I out Morningstar and Bloomberg. <laughs> I How may have that? seen that. <laughs> yeah, well we, deserved. I, I wasn't at the conference, but uh, my team was. Uh, it was uh, my anniversary, a tenth anniversary. But so, top-down approach. Best sectors right now be technology. Best industry groups. It was semiconductors. Now it's software, and then finding the best stocks in those groups, or finding the best ETFs. Or you can use it in a bottom-up approach. Hey, I want to find some stocks for my more aggressive clients or for my own account. So that's use case number one. Use case number two is more relevant to the question you just asked about how advisors are engaging with their clients. When the power gauge changes to bearish, it's usually because there's some underlying change in the fundamentals of the company. That's a per, and knowing that, and clients who subscribe to our Chaken Analytics product and have for the last uh, 10 years, have their clients' holdings in a list that they import through a spreadsheet and then get alerted every day to changes. Power gauge goes bullish or certain power gauge goes bearish, certain technical signals that indicate interesting entry points. So let's just take an example of something that would have happened after the pandemic crest uh, Zoom, which had had a bullish rating, saw the rating go bearish. A lot of advisors had clients who had long positions in Zoom. It's the perfect reason to call that client and engage him in a conversation. You know, I know we've had a good run in Zoom, but a, a third-party quantitative model that has been blessed by NASDAQ has just signaled a warning sign you know, let's talk about it. It's the perfect reason to engage a client. And most advisors don't have the tools to do that. They're, they're dependent on their fundamental research, Morgan Stanley, UBS. Um, but how often does an analyst at Morgan Stanley put out a sell recommendation? Right. Very rare. And so this gives the advisor a leg up on his competition, in my view, because it gives him something relevant to talk to. He's not just calling up about his golf game or how's your son and, you know, how was the confirmation of your grandson or your your son's bar mitzvah. He's talking to him where the client's living and sometimes they're living in pain. And what I found is, just to put a point on this, that very often clients get caught up in the fads of the day. And even though uh, the advisor has sway, a client may say, hey, look, this Peloton, I'm seeing it on TV. My wife's using it. I want to buy Peloton here. You know, it looks like it's going up. And sure enough, it did. It went up fivefold. Mm -hmm. And then the power gauge turned bearish. 
So what better reason for a broker who may not have put, for an advisor, may not have put the client into Peloton. The client may have put himself in the stock. I mean, there, there are a lot of advisor clients who on their own like to invest some money. What, what better way to tell a client, I'm on top of your account and I just want to alert you to a potential change here that you should know about. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And so before we wrap up here and go into our next segment, I do want to ask, you know, what's on the roadmap for Chaking Analytics? You've already come out of retirement. So <laughs> what else is there? Well, the I think the penultimate work that we did was to come up with power gauge ratings for sectors and industry groups and then give advisors the ability to use those ratings in a lot of different um, front end tools that we've created. So uh, we're going. We're coming out with a B2B product specifically, although we've always had hundreds of advisors who um, found us through firms like Wealth Management. Uh, but now, uh, now that we're part of Stansbury Research and MarketWise, we're taking all the resources that uh, we have available to us and we're coming out with a, a B2B product just for advisors. Well, very exciting. That'll be part two podcast down the road. <laughs> Indeed. follow up on that. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. But it's time for segment two of this episode that I call Ask Us Anything, where I've gone out to the social universe and asked them to submit questions they want answered by you. So let's see who is dropping into the inbox this week. Uh, you were a big hit. So I had to just choose a few. Uh, first question we had was, what was the biggest stock pick of your career to date? <laughs> Well, putting you in the hot seat. <laughs> it's interesting because it came right at the uh, in the heart of the COVID lockdown. I uh, Power Gauge found Wayfair, the online retailer, at about ten dollars a share. Uh, I'm sorry, about seventy dollars a share. I was thinking um, of a different online retailer, uh, Overstock, but at seventy dollars on the way to three fifty, and that all happened in about four months. Oh my gosh! And then the Power Gauge turned bearish. And I was skeptical. We were furnishing our house in Connecticut. We had just moved from Philadelphia. And I said, Sandy, this, these two stocks, um, Wayfair and Overstock.com, have just popped up as bullish. Because Sandy actually invests our retirement funds. She's gotten really good at it, at using the power gauge. And she said, oh, my God, we just ordered a, a sofa from, for our porch from Overstock. I said, well, now it's starting to make sense to me. You know, you'd think people wouldn't be redoing their house in the middle of a pandemic. No, actually, the opposite was true. And the good news is I didn't have to figure it out. The power gauge was sort of in your face saying, changing from, from bear to bull. And that was a big, uh, that's probably the big, biggest pick of the last 15 years. That's really interesting. I would have not have assumed that. <laughs> um so another question we had was the headlines are scary lately, you know, between mass layoffs, the interest rates still trying to normalize, but headlines don't always match the data. And as you said earlier, even, you know, we have low unemployment rates, job openings are high. So in your opinion, do you think this will lead to market growth and what sectors are you looking at to gauge this? Well, the U.S. economy has always grown. And my advice to clients for the last 10 years has been, Ignore the headlines because they they knock you off your plan and you've got to mm -hmm. have a plan to succeed. If you're watching CNBC, turn the sound off because, you know, the, you're going to hear so many opinions and you'll end up 
because of you know a bias that we all have, confirmation bias, to pick and choose the ones that support what you're thinking anyway. So it's it's really of no value. Um, I think the growth in the economy is going to come in the sectors that are involved with productivity. Mm-hmm. So semiconductors, very, very uh, strong growth area. You know the the landscape as well as I do. AI, data centers, cars, uh, and appliances, all dire need of semiconductors and a government that's now pretty... Um, you know, pretty supportive of uh, onshoring semiconductor production to avoid supply chain issues like we saw during uh, the post-COVID era. So uh, technology is always a favorite of mine. I'm also a big fan of, of of big pharma and biotech because I think at the end of the day, whatever the pricing issues are that have to get ironed out, uh, longevity is something that people will pay for. And whether it's a drug from a company that markets a, a diabetes drug for weight loss that's been very successful worldwide uh, to the big pharma companies like Bristol Myers and Smith Klein, uh, who Smith Klein's working on a vaccine for the rhinovirus, which turns out to be nor, more annoying than COVID. Now that COVID is no longer life threatening for most people. The rhinovirus, which is this, this nasal congestion that people had in the Northeast and just droves this season, SmithKline's working on a rhinovirus vaccine. Doesn't get a lot of publicity. The stock no. was stock was hammered because of some lawsuits over an old uh, an acid product. So I think there's tremendous opportunity in big pharma and in small biotech stocks. But only if the power gauge is bullish. The power gauge turned bullish on Smith Klein. I got interested. Power gauge turned bearish on Merck. I said, not now. But <laughs> but the key is it, to have a discipline, whatever that discipline is, whether it's following your firm's asset allocation model, following your firm's research department, doing your own research. If you have a discipline, you can survive bear markets and then come out the other side in very good shape. Well, you pretty much answered the final question for this segment then, because somebody did ask, you know, what advice do you have for folks or how do you quell the fears of those who are trying to navigate the market during times of uncertainty and volatility? You know, not everyone has the stomach for 10 bear markets. (laughs) Well, volatility is your friend if you have a plan. But if you let the headlines throw you off that plan, then volatility is going to mess you up. But if you're expecting volatility, and there are times that you know the headlines are going to create volatility, whether it's the Fed rate decision or the inflation numbers that come out you know, once a month. Uh, if you have a plan, you can take advantage of volatility, buy stocks with bullish fundamentals and technicals on weakness instead of chasing them when they break out. Because uh, particularly in a market that's transitioning from bear to bull, which is where I think we are right now, chasing stocks almost never works. But buying them on weakness... I hate the phrase "buy the dips" because it's it's kind of part of the lexicon, and they've added another letter in there, which is un, unmentionable on a podcast. But <laughs> buying weakness works; it's worked for fifty years for me. But as yep. someone said, just make sure that when the weakness comes, you're you're willing to buy, and it's having the plan that that sort of puts you in that mindset. 
That is great advice. So hopefully everyone listening adheres to that. And I appreciate you being put on the spot and your insightful answers, but we have come to our final and my favorite segment just called stack it or whack it where (laughs) (laughs) that's right. Uh, Where I'm actually going to throw out a few technologies and be warned. They are not always well tech related and you tell me if they are essentially worth the hype or not. So stack it or whack it. And I think I may know the answer to this first one I was going to ask you considering it's come up in our conversation. But uh, the first one I want to ask about is semiconductors, you know, obviously Every, the the technology that's powering cars, smoke, smartphones, computers. I know you're pretty pretty bullish on it, so I would imagine I know your answer for this. But stack it or whack it when it comes to the future of semiconductors. <laughs> oh, that's a big stack. Stash. <laughs> Put it in your stash. <laughs> I figured that was the case. So the second one I wanted to ask about was um, quantum computing. You know, admittedly, not an area I am well versed in, but considering your background, I figured you might have some thoughts on this. If you can find a company that has successfully harnessed quantum computing, just go all in. But there aren't that many out there. There, There's no, you know, sort of single investment opportunity that I know of in quantum computing. A lot of companies like IBM are dabbling in it uh, and Google, I would imagine. But um, if it comes, stack it. Uh, until it comes, whack it. All right. Stack it in a hybrid. Love it. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and getting to know you and and hearing all of your insights. So please feel free to tell listeners where they can find out more about you and what you're working on at Chaken Analytics. www.chakenanalytics.com. We we typically have some videos that are both educational as well as promotional that people will find on the internet. So I would just... um, Encourage people to take a look and especially advisors who have gone through a pretty tough year with 6040 in 2022. Uh, there may be um, some tools that can help you get your practice back on target. Fantastic. And be sure to like and subscribe to the WellStack podcast on all major podcasting platforms and follow all things WellStack on wealthmanagement.com, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And thank you all for tuning in today. Today's episode is sponsored by Wells Fargo Advisors Financial Network, Finet, member SIPC. Finet is focused on helping independent advisors support their clients and reach their goals with unique, ever-evolving solutions and resources from one of the nation's largest financial institutions. Learn how you can get more with Finet at wfa.com independent. That's wfa.com independent.